Chancellere Ultron and Kloshte is a Guinea Core. Agasaka Horehe, Kaltitoi, Genef Stader or Kusi Gelge, no Kursis Lien Keltake, is even dumb for in Ulskalisit Turtliot. Agaskan Buikas letter Dosaka Ultron, Asan Volche Creole Kurturum, Agas Lishna Dinielia, a quirk Firkin Volcherum Hins Rebma Van Kalis Ivin. Is more on an ordam and deshavam, and Kate Lert do glass the hearder word, Agas Jenim Cogotkas, Lats Agslehulskal Neherin, Asan Shunska Valerisha, Dagascam Buikaslo, Asanana or Hurtam, and Kate Lert Sishra Hurt. May I say first of all how <coughs> Chancellor and President and dear friends, how pleased I am and what an honour I feel it to be to have been asked to give the first inaugural lecture in the series in honour of Douglas Hyde. I am also so pleased to be able to do so in the presence of Douglas Hyde's granddaughter Lucy, uh, whom her family have made such a distinguished contribution to things Irish. It is so fitting that University College Dublin and the National University have chosen to honour Douglas Hyde by inaugurating a lecture series, for as you have heard, he was not only the first Professor of Modern Irish at University College Dublin, but also one of the leading members of the Fry Commission, which recommended the establishment of a national university. Now, I have some difficulties to say to you uh, straight away, and that is, I will sometimes speak in Irish and sometimes speak in English because my research told me that not everybody will be entirely fluent in, in Irish <laughs> by this evening, even though you had got a couple of weeks' notice. Anyway, <laughs> I, mention, I mentioned the Fry Commission, of course, but it is worth mentioning, of course, too, uh, that the Fry Commission also advocated the inclusion of Trinity as a constituent college within the new university. But I don't intend to discuss that issue this evening. <laughs> it is indeed, too, with some trepidation that I offer my own thoughts on the legacy of Douglas de Hilda. <clears throat> for the influence of his thoughts and actions on our national culture have been so vast and deep as to still profoundly permeate our society to this day. And then too, as I was listening to being introduced, my own political career, I've had the honour to hold two offices upon which Douglas Hyde has had such a decisive and lasting influence. Maralin Kalturas Gertakta Fevlinohin, Vishato Yanta Bartas Kalturka Karlekela Dar Boblot, Confish the Kalturar Nashunakar, Dihita Kunkins, and Orat Kalulshin, Darkwit, a Hogshaw score and common Nashuntilitrirte Halalain, Emalia Clea Erivte Kugelot, a Saun, Octiok Nokoto, Dar Tedel, the necessity for de Anglicizing Ireland, the Oramon Kurma Kurshins and Or. I refer, of course, to the very famous lecture which he gave and which must influence any, any minister for the Irish language. And then, too, so much later as our first president, it fell to Douglas Hyde to provide a frame for the new office, not only in establishing its precedence, but to explore its potential within the ambit of the Constitution of 1937, a period explored in Dr. Brian Murphy's recent biography, and I'm glad Dr. Murphy's with us, in Dr. Murphy's Forgotten Patriot, Douglas Hyde and the Foundation of the Irish Presidency. 
It was Eamon de Valera's Taoiseach, itself a new title, if not quite a new office, created by the Constitution, who at the inauguration of President Hyde in St. Patrick's Hall in Dublin Castle addressed the new president, first in Irish, then in English. In you we greet the successor of our rightful princes, and in your accession to office we hail the closing of the breach that has existed since the undoing of our nation at Kinsale. While this might have been, as the historian Dr. Patrick Mom has observed, a complex statement pregnant with symbolism, visual, historical, and political, would I find it difficult myself not to wonder at its excision of any Republican tendency, as might have been described in that time as the French ideas that, after all, had informed the young islanders. The ceremony itself was taking place in Dublin Castle. The magnificent painted ceiling of St. Patrick's Hall portrays three vistas, one of which is titled Henry II Receiving the Submission of the Irish Chieftains. At that time, it was conceived, it may have been a convenient visual metaphor, albeit one with dubious historical content, ignoring the many centuries of resistance by Irish, Norman Irish, and Anglo-Irish people to the authority of the crown. Thus, at the first inauguration, it provided a fitting backdrop for Eamon de Valera to echo the lamentations of the Irish poets in the centuries that followed the disaster of Kinsale, a period of uncertainty that the poet and scholar Davio Bruder would refer to as Brisha and Tianganov, the breaking of the old customs. Is Lerger of Abadoglas the here then inspired fresh in the Gonola Corkra? I can say here it rather should more filigal of the moon a hawal, a dialchic hidden at the hidden island in area fair Good Jevin Reno Corkra, Kushia Serfinic Faru, a glare erlero at Kyonder Doromi Gilga the Hither, Marasi Marquishi, my first glimpse of the Gertacht. Darnoi, Quirin Scalara, Sean of Wellion, Vina Protegego, Corkratron, a mask, in Aigun Prieve, Smuny of Larnaca Vite Firde, the Hidden Island, Onamafal Shirge, Gartianga, Frivarta Gabayum Gulge, Shistrinaketa Ada, Ider Kentala, Agas Shaktiok Nokahat. And summarizing, really, the Hidden Island of Okorkre has been a matter of disputation as to whether the purpose of the Irish language is, in fact, to be an anti-colonizing tract, a movement from its very beginnings. But certainly, it had a profound influence on the ideas of Eamon de Valera, strengthening his resolve to complete what he saw as the great work commenced by Douglas Hyde and others in terms of the revival of the Irish language. But his words, I think, used the chosen. In doing so, it displaced a rich source in the traditional genealogy of Irish republicanism, that of an unbroken chain of liberty forged by the United Irishmen, Young Ireland, the Fenians, right through to the men and women of 1916. When the Taoiseach hailed the new president as, quote, inheriting the authority and the respect which the Gaels ever gave to those whom they recognized to be their rightful chiefs, it was more than an invocation of an ancient lineage of rightful authority. It was a declaration of an expansive 
if specific vision of nationality. The ancestors of Douglas Hyde, after all, were not imagined ancient Gales. Douglas Hyde tells us that his ancestor, Arthur Hyde, was a friend of the Queen's favourite, that rascal Dudley. Perhaps as a consequence, Arthur Hyde received a grant of 12,000 acres as part of the plantation of Munster, the very enterprise that had provoked Hugh O'Neill to rebel against the Crown and launch his people on the path that led directly to the defeat at Kinsale. The political symbolism of greeting the descendant of the Elizabethan planter as the heir to the Gaelic princes that his ancestor had displaced was not lost at all on those assembled in St. Patrick's Hall 80 years ago on the 25th of June 1938. Ireland was not to be a community of blood, an absurd proposition, but one that rules sway in Europe but rather a nation bound together by its spiritual, scholarly and cultural aspirations. It is perhaps easy to dismiss this rhetoric today in its entirety, for its fictional idealism obscured not only the complex reality of the 16th and 17th century, but also it tended to hide those more conservative tendencies that had emerged in the newly independent state. For many, the Ireland of the 1930s was, was being experienced as an authoritarian and carceral state, one that was not only censorious of intellectual dissent, but of deep tendencies that privileged the status of property and its associated respectability, and also contained exclusions on the basis of gender and class. Yet if any single individual represented the idealist qualities of mind and spirit suggested by the Taoiseach's word at the inauguration, it was Douglas Hyde. Eamon de Valera addressed the new president and Dr. Anua as a scholar, a creeping Yilish. You symbolised for us the things by which our people set most store. Douglas Hyde was not, after all, born to the grandeur of Carrick and Asia, Castle Hyde, the seat of his ancestors in the River Blackwater, but at French Park in County Riscommon, where his father, Arthur, was the local Church of Ireland rector. His mother, Elizabeth, was the daughter of John Orson Oldfield, the Archdeacon of Elphin. It is important, as the late Vivian Mercer suggested, to remember that our Irish and literary revival owes a great deal to the children and grandchildren of Church of Ireland clergymen, be it from John, William Butler Yeats and the Sings to Standish O'Grady, all of whom found a literary and scholarly vocation rather than a religious one. Tom with fear via to Gomnik O'Dalek as dealing a good glass to hear in a fair old game show as Annalisha Yanavara Maratogentike in a doctor Lergas Integera Oike Eros Common, Ahasaram Gwildinian Shas Ros Common, Legenia Honig Merskalark Sar Lukvar, Liamak Mohunagas Mara Wiken Ward, Marhalpless and Imlor Lagaret Era Ireland. Tabronar nafra shansarm leiv kartuurt er en skolarakt sa hanesje rojanak aktasje firhavaktak agas is mahan rade gul skolari den ska erfall kan lekt ni hoots ne blinta talet chert. 
Tosin de lin de nedilene in actor shotaker, Gogaret Krishka rubre lotia gonuiter. Tankidim largo prida merla, agas fectre kit kimanus a gulga, tan daraka round rind gokoramitr and dah younger, agas nehim laurelian a yixin in oilga, agas in arm a ramana in sagarmonish. Nocta nehim lauris tushke on sail, a cob wikini nu lahushla conoctic fiak endless a gistruct, a halcha a gorsen, a winchan of us pleasure agas quitaka chile. Translating it is to say only that we are very grateful to Dominic Oteli. And really, I have to, for that an analysis of those early diaries of Douglas Hyde. As I've said, I've referred also t- to the most recent scholarship that I have read of William Buckmahuna and Mara Wacken Ward, for which I think we should all be very, very grateful, published most recently in Era Ireland. Douglas Hyde learned his Irish from the gamekeeper Seamus Hart, a local woman, Mrs. Connolly, and from his friend John Lavin and his wife. One very intriguing consequence is that he adopted different modes of address for his parents in English and in Irish. In English, he refers to his father as Pa, or alternatively, the governor, and his mother as Ma. Learning Irish from the perspective of the people, he referred to his parents as unwashter, agus unwashtras, the master and the mistress. This pattern is repeated with the use of Latin, as any use of it in the diaries appears in relation to the activities of the domestic staff. Dominic Adolik suggests that the Hydes would have used Latin in the presence of servants if they wished to discuss a matter not for the ears of servants. I believe myself that this is a strategy that could not have been totally successful, as elder servants would have spoken a form of Latin that they would have become acquainted with from their study of not only Latin but their Greek roots. Aaron fell the knowledge of the shock the quick, Kyle Farrer Evan Maser is a shin shamus heart. Tafid, the August the Hida was in a deal in a schluck the Lerin, near one and masses and canaveger Hiamas heart, a cotopis a directly the Hijan Changa Aulam. It is from that message that he wrote on the death of the person who was bringing him into the Irish language, Seamus Hart, Seamus Hart, the Douglas Hyde, writes in his diary, in said in Irish, Fur Seamus Boss in ye, Farco Gianul, Shilco Firinak, Shinco Mintrak, Shinni Akamarif, Visha Chenti, Pershakten is an Ishin Fur Shabos. A Hamish victor in a fallum, a Gilg Uit, Farla Gilga Commission, if he stays Ni higlam dini erbit dekal fast and amid dulam maravi agamonatse shak siribilatis grevdan and banaha ernath inich. He is in a very emotional way saying how indebted he is to Seamus Hart for the beautiful Irish and how lucky he, Douglas Hyde, was in having him as an instructor and someone to introduce him to the language. The young Douglas Hyde was not dissuaded by his parents in his linguistic pursuits. Far from it. He was educated at home by his father after suffering from measles only weeks into his education at a boarding school in Dublin. Oh, lucky. 
Though his formal language lessons were those required for a life of theological thought, Hebrew, language of the Old Testament, Greek, the tongue of the New, and Latin, that of the Church Fathers, he was encouraged in his learning of Irish. The diary entry for the Christmas after Seamus Hart died records the gift of Unbibla Nertha, that Irish Bible translated in the 17th century by William Bedell, the Bedell Bible, the Church of Ireland Bishop of Kilmore. This supplemented the Irish copy of the New Testament, left in their house by a clergyman friend of his father's, enabled Douglas Hyde to read the language he was learning viva voce, as he put it, from the people. Indeed, there are very strong hints that Reverend Hyde on Marshter himself spoke Irish. The entry in Douglas Hyde's diary for August 1875 includes an anecdote. This is the saying that his father in the exchange had said, met a man seeking alms, and he asked him how many sacraments are in my church, and he said seven, and he said, I don't believe you, but here's a few pence. <laughs> that a Church of Ireland clergyman of Arthur Hyde's age and education should speak both English and Irish. In addition to those languages necessary to his vocation, should not surprise us. Even if the Anglican Church only formally approved the use of Irish in worship in 1873. For Arthur Hyde was born in the third decade of the 19th century, at a time when up to four million people on our island spoke our native language, some as monoglots, but many as bilingual speakers. More than at any time in our history, before or since, it was in use in courtrooms in churches, Catholic, Anglican and dissenting, in the trades, in political life by people of all faiths and backgrounds. And I think this is shown in a very important new contribution to the debate about the language. I refer to an Irish-speaking island by that young scholar at New York University, Nicholas Wolfe, and I think his book comprehensively demonstrates what I have just said. Though the governmentality of the Irish state based in Dublin Castle may that have, may that have been that of a garrison, one that sought to extirpate the Irish language, in the 18th and 19th centuries it was forced to come to terms with Irish speakers, even to the point of providing translators when required, though of course many judges and barristers were bilingual. In the field of electoral politics, the Catholic Relief Act of 1793 had the effect of enfranchising all landholders with a valuation of more than 40 shillings. This legislation attempted to reverse the growth of the Society of United Irishmen, who, inspired by Tom Paine's The Rights of Man and The Fall of the Bastille, aimed to unite Catholics, dissenters and Anglicans behind the cause of a non-sectarian republic modelled upon the French lines. The newly enfranchised Catholic electorate included many monoglot Irish speakers requiring translators at the polling booths. This was in a time before the secrecy of the ballot had been established. Yet despite the presence of an Irish-speaking and bilingual culture, 
the Irish language suffered a massive decline in a very brief space, the space of three generations, a phenomenon that scholars have termed the language shift. The 1851 census records only 1.5 million Irish speakers, a consequence, above all, of the death and emigration of the principal body of Irish speakers during the Great Hunger and Garta Moor. For it was the courtiers and those who farmed the most marginal land and in the most precarious economic situation upon whom the greatest burden of the famine fell. The famine fell, and I think recently, revising something I've written myself on the famine, I think to actually make your escape to either Australia or to the to the North America, one needed something to sell. So the number of the poorest classes who actually died on the road is understated in my view. Yet moving on. In the 1850s there were more Irish speakers in the streets of New York than at any time in the history of the United States before or since. The Great Famine was the single most important event in forming our distinctive form of Irish modernity. A modernity defined by that catastrophe and its aftermath. Born then in the shadow of this in 1860 Douglas Hyde was thus raised in a society still in the throes of the terrible changes wrought by the famine, at a time when the language shift was so deep that the use of the Irish language was imperiled. Indeed, when Douglas Hyde began to practice with Mrs. Connolly, who milked the cows for the Hyde family, he noted it in his diary in English, Mrs. Connolly's Irish is improving. She is better able to get her tongue around it and is coming back to her memory. Indicating that in Mrs. Connolly's case, as in so many, the language of her youth was not now her familiar language of usage on a daily basis. As Garrod O'Toohig would put it later, it had lost its transactional value, either in terms of commerce at home or readiness for immigration abroad. And like so many sons of Anglican clergy, Douglas Hyde went on to Trinity College, which not only provided a challenging but an alienating experience. Gerberda Coffig, author of the first biography of Hyde, recounted how a now famous story about a fellow student insisting that Hyde must have learned his Latin at a continental academy, so alien was his pronunciation to the ears of his peers. No answer, Hyde, but I have modelled my pronunciation on that of Irish. You do know a lot of languages, Hyde, a fellow student remarked to him. How many do you know? English, German, Hebrew, Latin, Greek, and French, I suppose. Yes, answered Hyde, and I can read Italian. But the language I know best is Irish. Irish, explained, exclaimed it the fellow student in astonishment. Do you know Irish? Yes, said Hyde quietly, I dream in Irish. Trinity was not then a friendly house for the Irish language. Indeed, Janet and Garrett and Levy have suggested that it was at Trinity that Hyde adopted his now famous pen and Creven, even in an effort to disguise his identity while writing Irish language poetry for the Shamrock and the Irishman, two magazines that had, were flirting with separatism. Critics would often note that his mode of expression grew more exuberant and certainly more nationalist when he wrote in Irish. 
as his Irish language poems attest. Hyde himself was greatly amused at frequent references to, by critics to him as Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. <laughs> Coming of age in the turbulent 1880s, the decade of Parnell and the Land League, the great alliance of parliamentary party, the land movement and the Fenia movement, schooled by his neighbours in the tradition of nationalist struggle, it is not surprising that Hyde evinced as a young man separate, separatist nationalist feelings. Going on, and now I'm indebted to the new scholarship as well, not only to become uncreaving even, but also on Gergon Gloss, in which he wrote his more nationalist sentiment. National sentiments were not wholly unusual sentiments for a young Irish Protestant. We need only recall the example of Thomas Davis, or indeed John Kells Ingram, the author in 1843 of the ballad, The Memory of the Dead, later translated into Irish by Hyde. Kells Ingram, another son of an Anglican clergyman and a very fine sociologist and economist, indeed someone who pioneered using the historical inductive method in economics, something to which we could return, was perhaps more typical than Davis. He drifted from towards advocacy for a form of independence heavily influenced by his own reading of the work of Auguste Comte, sometimes referred to as the founder of the modern subject sociology, a rarefied and unique view of independence, one that required a moral transformation rather than a political one. Yet Douglas Hyde, for all the force of his poetry, was always suspicious of the capacity of physical force to achieve independence. He certainly admired the veteran Fenians, John O'Mahony, a distinguished Irish scholar in his own right, writing a moving encomium titled O'Mahony's Lament, and O'Donovan Rossa, a native speaker and man of great courage and vitality. Yet when Hyde came to revise one of his youthful poems, celebrating the exploits of Creveen's grandfather, a fictional character, in the 1798 Rising, he implicitly criticised O'Donovan Rossa for provoking the people to a, a rebellion which could only lead to inevitable defeat. His youthful suspicion of violence as a political method would abide with him through life. Yet again I am saying... I, I announce a reservation since even I wrote this piece. I am alerted to any generalization by the recent work of Timothy G. McMahon, together with the work of Liam McMahona and Maura Nickham Ward in the current issue of Era Ireland, which I strongly recommend. As a teenager, I did become a member of the Society for the Preservation of the Irish Language, established in 1877. But it was antiquarian in emphasis rather than being dedicated to the living language still spoken by the people of the West. Hyde would join the more active Gaelic Union, while a member he contributed an essay to the 1886 edition of Dublin University Review entitled A Plea for the Irish Language. This was to be a precursor to the many of the ideas developed in the necessity of de-anglicising Ireland, which would come later. It was somewhat less strident in tone, calling only for the establishment of, for all time, a bilingual population in those parts of Ireland where Irish is now spoken. Yet it was an early indication of the great work to which Douglas Hyde would devote his life. 
he was not truly convinced of the struggle until six years later. He saw his friend Owen McNeill in the Royal Irish Academy Library on Dame Street reading that great medieval manuscript, Lar Lainach, the Book of Leinster, as if it were but a novel, as he put it. <laughs> as important as contemporaries such as Owen McNeill and Thomas O'Neill Russell were as formative influences, it was perhaps Thomas Davis more than any other who was the antecedent to Douglas Hyde's efforts. In his short life, Davis drew together many strands, the egalitarian republicanism of the United Irishmen, the linguistic and cultural nationalism of Johann Herter, the universalist emancipatory ideals of revolutionary France, and may I say, the danger-filled romantic nationalism of the German lands of the 1930s. The great inclusive project of Young Ireland, after all, with its civic republicanism, was programmatic in its intent, extending from the public provision of libraries in every town and village in Ireland, to even during the famine and after Davis's death, offering a cogent critique of the then dominant liberal political economy, which had had such catastrophic effects on the people of Ireland. It is not difficult to discern the influence of Davis on that famous essay of Hyde, the, de- the necessity for de-anglicizing Ireland. When Hyde gave that address, he was responding to a speech by Dr. George Sigerson, scientist, self-taught Irish speaker, and a liberal critic of Fenianism and physical force nationalism. A friend then, and sympathetic, one at that, not dissimilar by inclination or upbringing to Hyde. Indeed, as Hyde himself commented in a preface to the third edition of The Bards of the Gale and the Gaul, a title indicative of Sigerson's adherence and advocacy to a form of syncretism, the only translated books of Irish poetry between 1860 and 1895 were Sigerson's Poets and Poetry of Munster and Hyde's Love Songs of Connacht. Sigerson had delivered a lecture on Irish literature, its origin, environment, and influence, in which he loaded the Irish contribution to European literature and thought from the earliest times. As learned as the lecture was, and as generous in its sentiments, it is Hyde's reply to the lecture which has survived for posterity. This interest in the reply came as a surprise to his contemporaries. The next evening at the Contemporary Club, Hyde's reply came up for discussion, only to be casually dismissed by the brilliant lawyer W.F. Bailey, who said, let us turn to something of importance and reality. By e an arcini rinne de hiden lawshin no kamyak kultur nashon the an selitriaks and araniaks and edak few kyan arreche detak mitene herne hutle kele biakshidene ne noktori nuna nashonaha maradir jeklan kaipert vi krinak lishen kuyen yanishen akini dir de hiden yurevishek amsha on kontrarak de vigest kanese detak ne glushakti mora nashonaka Pernelica Sagasera Oak on Kovash in a Spraga, Emastini few, Agasaganam Kene Kulturirinak, Nishina Kavid, Drapishi Aka, Unchanga, Harin Rod Elia. He is really referring here to that contradiction 
of how excited nationalists can be about issues of land and whatever, but how they're willing to leave aside the importance of culture and the place of language within culture. Since I wrote, I was thinking of a remark of George Birmingham who goes out to ask the local shopkeeper how the vote has gone in Westminster on the on home rule. And he got the answer from the shopkeeper. To hell with home rule, it's the land we're after. Well, it, what I think Hyde said of that contradiction that he saw in commitment it has been very curious to me, Hyde wrote, how Irish sentiment sticks in this halfway house, how it continues to apparently hate the English and at the same time continues to imitate them, how it continues to clamour for recognition as a distinct nation and at the same time throws away with both hands what would make it so. The historical narrative that Hyde presented of the maintenance of a vigorous Irish literary culture in post-William at Ireland of 18th century townlands which could still boast of storied poets, of common peasants reciting the poems of Donacamora Dalig, born 60 years before Chaucer, came to shape the Welt and Schaum of the men and women whose writings, books, pamphlets, plays and poems would come to make ground for a distinctly Irish independence. That movement, which we call the revival. There is much in the de-Anglicisation address that betrays its 19th century origins. Frequent references to the Celtic race, for example, not only indicate the influence of Victorians such as Matthew Arnold, who created various racial categories and applied characteristics to them. Unsurprisingly, perhaps, the Celts had drawn a short straw in Arnold's view. But despite loose invocations of the racial concept, Hyde's locus of Irishness was not racial but linguistic, echoing a romantic identification of language and nationality. Indeed, he could not imagine the possibility of national freedom without cultural distinctiveness. As long as the Irish nation, he writes, goes on as it is doing, I cannot have much hope of its ultimately taking its place among the nations of the earth. For if it does, it will have proceeded upon different lines from every other nationality that God ever created. Instead, as Declan Kuypert has so pithily summarised, Hyde wanted to found Irish pride on something more positive and lasting than mere hatred of England. He proposed nothing less than the restoration of the language, a reversion to Irish place and surnames, a recultivation of Irish music, and a return to what was then viewed as traditional national dress in lieu of what he called the cast-off clothes of the English bourgeois, which he later himself acknowledged was somewhat of a quixotic plea. I do recall followers such as Claude Chavasse, who took this literally. His model for this programme was, and here perhaps we can hear Uncrevin speaking of the Fenians, <clears throat> in order to keep the Irish language alive where it is still spoken, which is the utmost we can at present aspire to, nothing less than a house-to-house visitation and exhortation of the people themselves will do. Something, though with a very different purpose, analogous to the procedure that James Stevens adopted throughout Ireland when he found her like a corpse on the dissecting table. But Egan Agriacht, 
that league having been established and tied then its president. Shortly thereafter, he married Lucy Kurtz and settled at Rattran French Park to live the life of a country gentleman. His friends would describe him as a dinner whistle here at Common. It was nonetheless a most fruitful time for his scholarship, marked by the publication of ten books, including his magnum opus, The Literary History of Ireland, a bold scholarly attempt at recovery of the Irish literature since the earliest times, by which Hyde, of course, meant Irish literature in Irish. Rowning Patrick Maum on Chetil the Long Gestation, Concursia Sayena Veracuntus and a cell now shown a kit at Titan Parnell, Augustau and a kid dollar. Is three genevictic culture a quitter color, the digris fin the siecle nahere in Eloher, Augustitur Drim Lovet and Cockic that are wheeled a farce parliament at Nahere. Arena docker than Dahef, August Marhara queer come a divio, August Comagiker, in an on a chancellor. Three call active made to us if he needs gneve the year. Vian Conran on Laurigus Lauron Skelta Bellidish, Filiac Tauron Yachtile, she was love screeny ash gawan, August a hunker a carivim on Porcher Parliament of Neherin, August a Rudrashelia in Erin. I have been describing, in summary, Robert, Roger Patrick Mums in the long gestation which gives credit to the cultural movement as that which absorbed most of the energies in the fin de siècle of that period. As president of the Gaelic League, as a scholar of great learning, Hyde was more than capable of engaging in disputation, of outmastering his opponents, particularly when they emerged from Trinity College. And you are almost welcome if you are here. <laughs> When the Commission on Intermediate Education heard evidence from, among others, Professors Mahaffey and Atkinson against the teaching of Irish, Hyde not only assembled evidence from the leading Celticists of his day, such as his friend Kuna Meyer, who later took up a position as professor in Celtic languages at the Royal Irish Academy and initiated the Dictionary of the Irish Language, but delivered he, Hyde delivered a, ver a veritable coup de grace against one of his old Trinity interlocutors by observing that his opponent was a brilliant scholar who could speak the languages of every country save his own. <laughs> in such a reply, there are records of Thomas Davis' famous plea for the teaching of Irish history in Trinity 60 years earlier. Gentlemen, you have a country. During a fundraising tour of the United States in 1905-06, the Mercantile Lucy Fuchin, that trip took six months. And you'll see in the manuscripts that you have here, he describes on the strength of the collections from the different, he didn't get much in Butte, Montana, did well in San Francisco, but gave a third of it back because they'd had the fire. 
But during that fundraising tour at Maratosha Falche in Mohrosk, in, in, in America, my trip to America, he was recognized as an accomplished public orator by Irish-American audiences, often speaking for two hours. So you're not too bad. <laughs> he was hailed as a hero on his return, with O'Connell Street packed with people from the Rotunda to the GPO. And as I mentioned earlier, of course, Hyde played a foundational role chancellor in the founding of the National University of Ireland. When the university was established, it was immediately subject to controversy, conspoage, as to whether Irish was to be compulsory for matriculation. It split the country, and thus split the United Irish League, the mass movement that sustained the Irish Parliamentary Party. The League was able to summon tens of thousands onto the streets in support, and it was Hyde's oration at the Ardesh of the United Irish League in 1909 that won the support of the League, which in turn secured a majority for essential Irish in the University Senate. In this decade of centenaries, it was important to recall the account of the resignation of Douglas Hyde following the Eroctus of 1915. The Eroctus passed by a very large majority, a resolution to amend the constitution of the League, to include amongst its objectives the necessity to make Ireland free of foreign domination. A de Ganoha of the League, dominated by members of the Irish Republican Brotherhood, included Sean Tia Kallig, by the way, was elected leaving Hyde, as he thought, but little choice but to step down as president in protest at what he felt was an unwarranted politicisation of the League. Of course, it was in this institution, UCD, that he practised his vocation as the first professor of modern Irish. And by the accounts of his students, and so many of them here now, he was a much-loved teacher, closer and more informal than those colleagues, wearing the rather stern mean cultivated by so many lecturers of that generation, and as felt by them to be appropriate to their status. Above all, he was capable of eliciting a passion for the language from his students, reflecting perhaps the fashion, that passion that had awakened him in his teenage years in French Park and Roscommon. In Mishaukas and Conra, Hyde records a letter from that great scholar of old Irish, Osborne Bergen. Is mas quiven lumrant plinto hin turescora laur that laurif decum shetam, agas gan focal gaelia fanam shinakam, shinais tokan kade need the vrustic mechanagalia taulum, agas the grath hokig har inchanga eliatar lauter, no dar laura griefs and down more. Davrishin is tasafin yara, gamve mar ataminish, tricush yirikas tricushim kay. It was said that Hyde was also generous in his attitude towards encouraging the use of the language. One of his students, Gerard Murphy, later the Professor of History of Celtic Literature, here again at University College Dublin, recalls that Hyde frequently chided those who would correct his students over some grammatical error. We must not be purists, he said. An invocation not always followed, I am afraid, in succeeding generations. For all the 19th century peculiarities of the address that Douglas Hyde gave at Leinster Hall 126 years ago, the Arnoldian references to race, or as Bruce Stewart has highlighted, the unfortunate description of the Ulster plantation, it still remains a profoundly important legacy for us today. Not only because of the great movement of thought and action which it launched, I refer not to what might be construed as any simple linear association between language and nationhood, 
despite the apparent power of such a construction, the claims of young Ireland to national self-determination owed through its idealism when experienced so much more to republican ideals of civic nationalism and democracy. Indeed, while Patrick Pierce, as evidenced by his writings, whether in ghosts or the sovereign people, ultimately had to vest his claim to national freedom on the idea of popular sovereignty. The strangely unrepublican language then, used by Eamon de Valera at the inauguration of our first president, which so clearly drew on the tradition and language of resistance of 17th and 18th century Irish poets, as suggested by Corkery, is not near the fullness of President Douglas de Hida's vision. It would, in my view, be an inadequate encapsulation. No, Douglas Hyde's vision still stands today as both statement and enduring invitation for a cultural democracy. As an alternative vision to Irish modernity, it can be best considered an appeal to collectively construct a national culture. For as complex as debates in the language shift are, we should recall that it occurred in the context of a very particular political economy, both in its pre-famine and post-famine contexts. In post-famine Ireland, our native language carried, in the words of Garrod, Garrod Atuhig, little transactional value. Brought up in the aftermath of catastrophe, Hyde implicitly recognised this. How could he not, learning Irish from people who had lived through the great hunger? And while a failure of political leadership and clerical influence are often suggested as proximate causes for the decline of the language, Douglas Hyde spoke of a past in which, as he put it, the Irish peasantry were all, to some extent, cultured men, and many of the better-off ones were scholars and poets. This is the description of a form of cultural democracy, in which every woman and man can participate in creating and shaping their own culture. It is not merely a description of the past, I suggest, but also a prospectus for a more hopeful, inclusive future. Hyde wrote, We find ourselves despoiled of the bricks of nationality. The old bricks that lasted 1,800 years are destroyed. We must now set to to bake new ones, if we can, on other ground and of other clay. In our nam fein his minica bin an talavas an creel lam, mother lish an timplak dan a will na hak fini rihavak tukshin. Tana huilish is na mona kirkin kin kumarsaja kultur, agas olish a lav an waragik man mullaplak, agas ta shim sik triktraha agas homi igina hala haraktal marhara. Elina nein lahas kultura, talaf torulugas kre so vun laha, agas ni fetene kanelak shina kohwal, aknurvin akvini kuyik nadinir fat, urle shina lane, agas ne technoliakta. And translating, I'm saying really, those bricks and new materials of which White speaks are very difficult to envisage if we are in conditions of monopoly in matters cultural and matters associated with the media. To be able to, in fact, ensure that his vision becomes practical, we need to be able to know that culture, really, above all else, is a resource of the people, a gudgeon of all of the people. Finally, in this regard, I recall the insightful report prepared for UNESCO in 1981 by the International Commission for the Study of Communication Problems, chaired by that great Irish citizen and champion of human rights, Sean McBride. 
his report was remit was nothing less than to study the totality of communications problems in modern societies in order to address the many inequalities in information between the global north and the global south. After centuries of struggle against the imperial powers, the newly free nations of the global south sought a space in which to cultivate their own national cultures. They wanted the right to tell the news in a fair way, rather than to be the victims of monopoly in relation to the construction of news, and it divided UNESCO. The wisdom that is contained in the conclusion of that report remains with us as valid for today. It recognised that the vindication of the right to information and of the right to communicate required a right to participate in the production of information, the guarantee of diversity of voices and opinions, a strong public service media, the restriction of private media monopolies, the guarantee of the freedom of the press, and reciprocity in the flow of information between North and South. Since the publication of the McBride Report, certain trends, as I have said, have accelerated. Above all, the growth of a commercial media, which when it exists in a market whose bounds have widened to subsume all human activity. Eighty years ago, at the inauguration of a first president, Eamon de Valera spoke directly to Uncrevy. You're so foresight in saving from death our own sweet language, which your work and that of our colleagues of half a century ago have made it possible for us now to restore, merits the gratitude of all generations of the Irish that are to come. That legacy of Hyde can be found above all, I believe, in his expansive vision of cultural democracy. For it was from the people they learned the Irish language, collected our folklore and manuscript. It was to the people he looked for the regeneration of Irish culture, a culture sustained by an ancient inheritance, but also alive to new forms and innovations of imagination and to all the possibilities and potentials of the future. So let us in our time seek to equip not only our citizens but the people of other countries with the resources material and intellectual to shape their own culture, to become their poets, singers, authors and dreamers, be it in the language of their own and the language of others. Mila Buikas, Gramat.